0: Welcome to Florida Matters More, the podcast for Florida Matters, WUSF public media show about the issues and events that Floridians care about. I'm Robin Sessingham, host of Florida Matters. You can hear Florida Matters Tuesday evenings at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 7.30 on WUSF 89.7. Today, we have a very special Florida Matters More. I had a chance to speak with Jordan Peterson before his appearance at the Mahaffey Theater in St. Petersburg this weekend. I caught up with him while he was in Miami for a book tour event there. It is cell phone sound, and it's not what we like to play on public radio usually, but he's such an interesting person that the bad audio is worth it. Also, I had to edit this interview down to four minutes to play on the radio and I really wanted to make the full interview available. Jordan Peterson is a clinical psychologist and a professor at the University of Toronto. He's the author of the bestseller, 12 Rules for Life, an Antidote to Chaos. He's also a YouTube star and has a very popular podcast. Thank you for being with us today.
1: Thank you very much for the invitation.
0: So your book, 12 Rules for Life, an Antidote to Chaos, you've said that it's not a map for finding happiness, more a discussion maybe of the pursuit of meaning. Tell me what you mean by that.
1: Well, the problem with the pursuit of happiness is, first of all, it's not obvious that you can pursue happiness because it looks more like a side effect than a goal. And second, there's going to be lots of times in your life where the going is pretty tough. And, and that's certain for everyone. And so if it's happiness that's sustaining you, what are you going to do when times are difficult? You need something much more profound than happiness. Not that I have anything against happiness. If it comes your way, well, enjoy it. But it's not its not the meaning of life. And the meaning of life is to be found in something like the adoption of, of mature and far-seeing responsibility. And sometimes that means sacrificing happiness too, as everyone who's ever had children knows. You know, you have to sometimes forego what you want right now so that things work out better in the future. That's a discovery as old as humanity, that one.
0: You say bearing responsibility is very important. People need to carry a heavy load.
1: Yeah, well you know that if you think about who you admire, let's say, which is a good way to start thinking about what is meaningful, because uh, admiration is like a—it's like a—it's uh, an instinct in some sense, and it's, admiration draws you to people that you should imitate and emulate. And obviously, the people that you admire, if you have any sense, are people who at least can take care of themselves and are willing to do that and do that properly. And then, if you're fortunate, you also you find someone who has has resources that go beyond them. Right? They can take care of themselves, they can take care of a family, and maybe they can do both of those things in a way that's also good for the surrounding community. And that's, well, that, that's a much more robust pathway towards meaning, I would say.
0: You know that we in Florida have been grappling with these heartbreaking events, these mass shootings at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School and yep. now recently at a video game tournament in Jacksonville, and people have been searching for answers as to why this seems to keep happening. A lot of people point to gun control legislation and say, if we could just get the laws right, we could stop these kinds of things from happening. And I wanted to hear your thoughts on, on that. Well,
1: I'm more, in, I'm more inclined to consider those sorts of things from a psychological perspective, you know, And, and I think this is, it's a good question and I think it's one that's directly tied into the issue of meaning. People whose lives aren't properly grounded and who don't have something to rely on can easily become desperate and, and angry and, and then seek revenge and, and brood on that forever. And that's what happens in the, in the, in the lead up to like a mass shooting. And these things are spontaneous acts. People have been planning them and fantasizing about them for for months or years before they undertake them generally speaking and they're looking for a shortcut to notoriety and 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 also the desire to punish and hurt and that's that's, that's that, that that desire can emerge in you if you're not properly situated in your life if you don't have something to live for and so I think it's a a manifestation of a kind of corrupt hopelessness and and that uh, And and that that's the proper level of analysis. I believe that to be the case. In the book I wrote, in 12 Rules for Life, there's a chapter, Chapter 6, which is uh, set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. And It's in part a meditation on motivation for the sorts of things that you're describing. And I wrote the book in part to help people who are in dire straits existentially figure out ways of improving their life and moving away from a pathway to destructiveness.
0: Is there's something that society could do I know you're saying it's 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 more up to the individual to get their house in order and sort themselves out but those of us standing around you know perhaps with children in that high school I mean you want there to be something that that the community can do outside of that
1: well I think supporting um, supporting young people in their attempts to mature and to to put their lives together properly is the right community response but the problem with the sorts of events that you're describing is that even though they're very widely publicized they're comparatively rare and very very difficult to predict and control because there's lots of people who are who are nihilistic and a certain percentage of them are hopeless and 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 have violent fantasies but only a very tiny fraction of people like that ever act on them and so it's it's the, the the school shooting problem is a very difficult one because it, it's not something that you can predict. so And it, there's another issue too, which of course is that the people who commit acts like that are after the notoriety that is gained as a consequence of their murderous actions. They fantasize about the fame and notoriety that will come to them after the event. And you might think, well, what good does that do them if they're dead, for example? But that doesn't really interfere with the fantasy of... Notoriety and fame and revenge and I'll show them and people will know who I am. And, you know, since the fantasy is driving it, the, the post event reality isn't all that relevant. So it's a very difficult thing to contend with socially because these people have found a loophole in some sense in the media landscape where they can garner immense amounts of publicity for no cost, so to speak, to them. But, and, and then gain a public, well, public They become an object of public knowledge, which is really in large part what they're after, as well as the revenge. It's a very difficult thing to cope with socially. It's not obvious what can be done about it. I mean, I think what you do in general is you try to make better individuals, and that's partly, or in large part, what I've been trying to do with this book.
0: There does seem to be a, a terrible fear of being invisible going around. I saw a um, video recently. My youngest son sent it to me. It was supposed to be a joke. It's um, a family, and they play a trick on on their daughter. She looks like she's about 12 years old, and they pretend that she's become invisible, and they can't see her, and they're laughing. And then she starts screaming in the most horrible, despairing, and terrified way and it sort yes, of well, gives there's you. Two,
1: there's two fundamental fears, I would say. One is sort of the fear of nature, and that's the fear of death and disease and insanity. And, and then the other fear is the fear of social isolation and alienation. And those things are tightly linked because if you become socially alienated, then you're exposed more to natural catastrophe. You don't have a support system. But people cannot tolerate not being part of an intact and functional community, the family level, and, and so on. And, uh, and so, yeah, you're, that, that, the family they're playing with just tapped, tapped into a primal fear. And, uh, and so that's, that's, well, it's a bit of a, it's a joke that pushes too far. And so these people that become bitter, you know, they're often alienated for all sorts of reasons. They don't have close relationships and their family's dysfunctional and, and, you know, they're alienated from the community and that's all extremely bad news.
0: I've heard you say that that men in general are not doing well in our society right now. What in what way and 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 why not?
1: Well, I think part of the problem is is that we've we've adopted this line much more generally than we should have that our society is best characterized as something approximating a corrupt patriarchy, uh which is by no means true and um, our society is unbelievably functional produces a tremendous amount of wealth and well-being for almost everyone who's within it although there's obviously great differences in the distribution of wealth the problem with the theory of corrupt patriarchy is that one of its what would you say one of the consequences of the theory is the presumption that if you want to take your place in the in the in the world at large then what you're doing is manifesting an ambition that does nothing but support corruption and patriarchy that's particularly hard on young men because You know, in in principle, our patriarchal tyranny is a masculine construction, something else I don't particularly believe. But what that means is that if young men want to take their place within it, then all they're doing is manifesting something that's fundamentally destructive. And that's a terrible doctrine. It takes their ambition and their competence and turns it into a manifestation of something that's evil. It's It's a horrible doctrine. And I would say it's the dominant doctrine at universities at the moment especially in the social sciences and the humanities. And it's pervading the education system at, at earlier stages as well, in, in elementary school and junior high and so forth. And so it's, it also gives young men ex, who are looking for an excuse to be irresponsible a reason for it, because if you're tempted to want responsibility, and I think everyone is to some degree, and then you're rewarded or you're punished for being responsible, then, well, obviously that's not a very intelligent way of of progressing.
0: So do you think that um, statements like that, when you just said that that's a doctrine that's in the universities a lot, you for some reason you've become very um, controversial in some circles. Joe Rogan, I've listened to all those podcasts with, with you. He said, that, he said on his podcast you were the most misrepresented person he's ever seen, and he's interviewed more than 1,000 people on his podcast. You've been called misogynistic, dangerous, alt-right, Um, You know, what do you think's going on there?
1: Oh, well, I think that the collectivist types, the people who play identity politics, uh, they don't like me at all. And they have every reason to not like me because the feeling is clearly mutual. But because if they weren't able to pillory me and and describe me in, in all sorts of terms that are completely untrue, then I would have to be regarded as a reasonable person. And that would mean that a reasonable person could critique their doctrine which is clearly the case. So it's much more straightforward for the people on the far left, I would say, who consider themselves my enemies to do everything they possibly can to, 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 to go after my reputation, which has happened many, many times. I think I've weathered it. As far as I can tell, I've weathered it because I've been called the worst things that you can possibly be called now, and so I don't think there's anywhere else for people to go. You know, I've been compared to Hitler and, and tarred with alt-right sentiment, and described as anti-Semitic and misogynistic and racist and transphobic, and you know the whole the whole panoply of modern uh, modern epithets. And it's 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 mostly a, a consequence of the radical left's inability to deal with the arguments that I'm putting forward. And so th- that 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 drives a fair bit of it. Fortunately, it doesn't seem to be working very well. Fortunately for me, I suppose. If the, if the radical leftists were really concerned about the poor, they do their analysis of inequality a lot more carefully than they all doing them, because uh, you can't lay inequality at the feet of the West and capitalism. It's way more, pro- way, way deeper problem than that. I wrote about that a fair bit in chapter one, you know, where I talk about hierarchies and how old they are. The fact that they tend to, that the benefits of hierarchies tend to accrue to the people at the top, and and that people at the bottom tend to become dispossessed, but. That's a way deeper problem than capitalism. Capitalism is about the only system that produces wealth along with inequality. Every system produces inequality.
0: Yeah, so, something, something you talk about a lot is the importance of, of status and, and the hierarchy, that there will always be a hierarchy as long as some people are better at something than other people, whether it's sports or academics or making money or looking good. Um, do you think your book sure. is, a, is a guide to helping people navigate that hierarchy a little more successfully rather than ignoring? I
1: think think that's precisely what it is. It's twofold. It's It's a guide to navigating the difficulties that life itself presents independently of hierarchy. The fact that suffering is more or less built into the structure of reality and then also a guide to being successful in the multitude of hierarchical structures that make up our society. And the best way to be successful isn't to exercise power or control uh, that's nonsense. The best way to be successful is to be a good player, to be a good team player, to be reciprocal in your interactions, to be honest and forthright and responsible. And, and if you think that's tyranny, then, well then, well then there's something seriously wrong with the way you think. You're either deeply confused or, or resentment is driving your theorizing. And I think that both of those things are true of the postmodern neo-Marxist types that, that, that now occupy so much of the universities. It's just not the case, like most of our hierarchies in the West are hierarchies of competence, not hierarchies of tyranny or power, even though, you know, our things do tend towards corruption to some degree, and you have to keep your eyes open all the time.
0: A couple things from there. Um, you are a professor at the University of Toronto, and you're talking about things that are going on in the universities, and I'm wondering if you've found your views stifled. You've kind of become a standard bearer for academic freedom and free speech. Yeah. Was that something you intended, and how did that happen?
1: Well, I wouldn't say I precisely intended it. Uh, what happened in Canada was that our government passed some legislation that purported to be compassionate in its fundamental aim, but was really, in my estimation, was, was a piece of legislation that posed a very uh, uh, real threat to to free speech and also to scientific integrity, and uh, and so I made some videos, just making my, my ma- making my point, and they really blew up, um, and the university found itself in a position where they regarded themselves as forced to reprimand me. So they sent me two letters of warning, telling me to cease and desist, and I read those. All, out loud on YouTube, um, after warning the university that they weren't pursuing me in a very intelligent manner, although they didn't improve their pursuit as a consequence of receiving that information. And that really blew up in a major way, both in Canada and internationally, and was one of the events, I would say, that sort of kicked off this rise to... Either popularity or notoriety, depending on how you look at it, hmm. over the last few years.
0: Yeah, this was the. Um, was this at the university, or was this in your town? The, the rule of um, mandating the use of gender-neutral pronouns.
1: Well, it was both in the country, uh, in our province, equivalent of, of an American state. At the federal level, there was new legislation legislation being passed that would compel the use of those pronouns, as well as would build a what's known as a social constructionist view of, of gender identity into the law, and that view holds that there are no biological differences between men and women and that all the differences are a consequence of socialization. And that's patently untrue. And so basically the legislation built a false scientific theory into the structure of Canadian law. And that was one of the reasons I opposed it. Now, the same thing has happened in some places in the United States and certainly what people insist upon in the university campuses across the U.S.,
0: so the hierarchy. Getting back to the hierarchies for a second, that's also um, where you give your definition of the left and the right. That the hierarchy is kind of a conversation between the political yes, left. That's,
1: yes, that, that's a really good point. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I do in my lectures is try to outline this. The public lectures, which I, I've been in about seventy cities in the last five months, talking to audiences that are about two thousand usually per, per evening. And one of the things I try to do is to make a case for the necessity of both sides of the political conversation. So, the right-wing types, the more conservative types, tend to be pro-hierarchy, right? That, that accounts for their patriotism and and for their uh, for their concern about border integrity and and their patriotism and and and, and that sort of thing, um, their belief that you know that that our current society is just and equitable. And then the left is always concerned when they're behaving properly with the fact that hierarchical structures do tend to dispossess and to stack people at the bottom and that they can become corrupt over time. Now, the thing is, both of those things are true. You need the hierarchies because they're social tools to accomplish necessary goals. But they do dispossess and they can become corrupt across time. And so then you might say, well, how much attention should we pay to repairing the hierarchy versus rectifying the corruption? And the answer to that is... Well, it depends on the time, and that's why we have to have continual dialogue. And dialogue is—and that's the free speech issue—dialogue is the process by which the system remains balanced. And so then if you start to interfere with free dialogue, then you interfere with the mechanism that's maintaining and, 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 and improving the state. And that's not good.
0: The podcasts and the YouTube videos that you've done, they've given you a platform where you can make your arguments— In a long form, your arguments are sometimes quite complicated and and, um, in as long a form as you need. And you've compared the new technology to the Gutenberg printing press in the way that it has revolutionized communication.
1: Yeah, the fact of online video and also podcast means now that the spoken word has the same reach and permanence as the printed word. And that's never been the case in all of human history. And it's it's much shorter time to publication, let's say, if you're making a video or a podcast than it is to write a book. That's, you know, that's years to write a book and have it published and distributed. It's very, very unlikely. And then, of course, normally spoken word has no permanence at all. It just evaporates into the air. But with YouTube videos and online videos and podcasts, the spoken word has become incre- incredibly powerful as a permanent mode of communication. And people can also listen... Um, in, at times they can't read. So first of all, reading is a minority taste. And second, you can't read while you're driving or eating the dishes or, or exercising or going for a walk or any of those things, but you can listen to podcasts. And so, and, and there's also no bandwidth restriction, right? Because both for online video and for podcasts, length doesn't matter. And so now it turns out that people look like they're a lot more intelligent because if you feed them long form dialogue, they're hungry for it. And so that's a really big deal as far as I'm concerned. That's something that's really cool and positive.
0: And you're attracting a younger audience. Uh, millennials use that technology. They're very adept at it. So you've you've found an audience that way.
1: Well, and those younger than millennials as well, you know, and who I think are even more attracted to the sorts of ideas that I've been putting forward we return to the idea of individual responsibility as the cornerstone of meaning. That's that's something that seems to be particularly attractive to people under 25, let's say, or, or maybe even younger than that. And so, yeah, I mean, we, I did a talk with Sam Harris in Dublin a while back on the relationship between facts and values, where we were discussing meaning in a philosoph- philosophical sense, and we had 8,500 people show up. So, and, and that was for for the third of four two-hour discussions. So it's clearly the case that people have, people's attention span has not been detrimentally affected. And they're definitely hungry for serious conversation, for serious conversation about responsibility and meaning. And, and and so I think that's all really, that's all real positive development. And these lectures that I've been giving um, during this tour, they've been unbelievably positive events because everybody that comes, they're not political events. Everybody that comes is trying to get their life together at an individual level. And so it's sort of a celebration of our ability to do that. Even in the face of the terrors of life, you know, and, and I'm very serious about laying that out. I, I'm, I'm not... I'm not a classical optimist in some sense because I see life as quite tragic and, and certainly rife with malevolence, and, but I still see within the individual human beings the ability to, to, to cope with that and, and to rectify it and to, and to live properly despite that. So that's an optimistic idea.
0: What have your audiences looked like?
1: Oh, they're, they're, that's really hard to say. They skew male. I would say it's probably 60, 40, 65, 35, male to female. Um, and I think that's probably because YouTube tends to skew male in it. The the people who watch YouTube videos tend to be male. Um, since the book has been published, then more and more women have been showing up because women are more likely to buy books. And, and, and so I would, but, I would say the average age is probably 30, maybe a little older, but it spans the entire uh, spectrum. And, um, all of the different identity spectrums are thoroughly represented. So, and uh, that's a lovely thing to see too. A lot of working class people show up, which I really like. Lots of truckers, people who operate machinery for many hours a day because they're listening to these podcasts. So, uh, and I like that a lot. Uh, it's pretty much a cross section of, of American society, I would say, with a bit of a tilt towards the male.
0: You you also have been called part of the intellectual dark web what is that, and, and who else would be part of that?
1: Well, that's a term Eric Weinstein uh, coined. He's a mathematician-slash-economist who works for Peter Thiel, and now in L.A., uh, Peter Thiel started PayPal, and uh, it's, 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 a, it's a collection, I would say, of people who've used YouTube and podcast technology to build independent media um, platforms um, and so that would include people like Dave Rubin and Joe Rogan. Joe Rogan's probably the most popular YouTube host uh in the world, maybe the most powerful interviewer that ever lived. He gets about one and a half billion downloads a year for his podcast, which is a reach that's just beyond comprehension. Um Sam Harris is often included as a member of the group. Journalists like Barry Weiss of the New York Times and Caitlin Flanagan of the Atlantic Monthly. Um uh Claire Lehman, who runs a newsletter uh journalist journal out of australia which has become very influential called quillette um douglas murray is another one uk uh um pundit um there's a there's a, a, a growing a growing number of us and I, I think the the thing that that we have in common to the to the degree that we do ben shapiro is often mentioned as part of the group it isn't political belief that unites us because our political beliefs are extremely diverse it's the possession of an independent platform the willingness to use long form discussion to pursue the truth and a fair bit of respect for the intelligence of our audiences. So and and that's all a manifestation of this new media the emergence of this new media.
0: And I wonder I listening to that list, definitely I would say skews conservative, or more libertarian at least. And I'm wondering if yeah, they... well,
1: I. I would say it skews that way, but but like Eric Weinstein's pretty liberal and his brother Brett, he his brother Brett's a biologist, he was chased off Evergreen Campus. Well that's His a, wife. Well they
0: they've, fall, um, they've fallen afoul, maybe. Finger, what's that? They maybe have fallen afoul of of liberals or liberal mainstream oh, yeah, liberal okay. view. Yeah. Oh
1: well, yeah. Although you know, I don't. I don't really think the views are are liberal. We did a a study on political correctness a while back. Uh, One of my students did a master's thesis on the structure of political correctness for the University of Toronto, and we found that there were really two distinct groups of belief: on the center left and the left, and they didn't overlap much. And the radical left types are their own particular kind of Marxist totalitarian and. The liberals, the true liberal types, the classic liberals, haven't done a good job of distinguishing themselves from those people or bringing them under control. And, uh, I think that's partly because they're high in, well, they tend to be open to ideas and, and so it's not so easy for them to, to make borders. You know, that's more of a conservative thing. So, and the problem with that is that it's, it's enabled the liberal end of the political spectrum to become radicalized despite the fact that most people on that end of the spectrum don't share those viewpoints.
0: I also, I wanted to mention that you've been asked to write the introduction to the 50th anniversary edition of Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago. Did I get that right? Yep,
1: you did. Yes, yes. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's that's gone off to proof already. It'll be out November 1st. Yes, that was a, well, that might have been the greatest honor of my life, I would say, because that's an amazing book, absolutely amazing book. It was the, the book that, took the moral and philosophical kicked the moral and philosophical underpinnings out from underneath Marxism so that they could never be replaced and to be able to write the introduction to that, the preface to that for, for the fiftieth anniversary version was really something was really something great. I hope I did a credible job so yeah i mean it 's it's, it's a book I would highly recommend to everyone, uh, despite it 's rather bleak well it 's exceptionally bleak. Uh, nature. It's still a, a story of the triumph of the human spirit, all things considered, but Solzhenitsyn documented in absolutely painful detail how the, it was the core uh, presuppositions of the Marxist doctrine that led to the absolute catastrophes in the Soviet Union and in China, and not some hypothetical cult of personality centered around people like Stalin and Mao. So it wasn't an aberration of Marxism. It was precisely what you would expect if Marxist doctrine was put into, into practice. And I think he made that case irrefutably.
0: And why did the publisher feel that you were the right person to write that introduction?
1: Well, I think it's because I've talked a lot about Solzhenitsyn's work in my online lectures, and, and that, that those had become re- relatively influential and because he believed that the publishers believed that I understood what Solzhenitsyn was doing and why and so that was the that was the that was the reason for the for the invitation because I talked so much about the book i put it on my reading list at jordanbpeterson.com um I brought many, many new readers to the book. Um, it was hard to get a used copy of it on Amazon for a while.
0: So tell me, where, where are you physically right now? Are you still walking around, and, and what town are you no, in? No,
1: I am actually looking. I am on the beach in Miami, and I'm looking out over the beautiful blue ocean and
0: laying on a, uh,
1: a towel pum mattress and enjoying the shade in the hot sun. <laughs> so that's a pretty good deal. I'll probably only have about an hour and a half to enjoy this before getting back to work, but it's pretty it's pretty nice to be down here in the summer.
0: Isn't this hot for a Canadian?
1: Oh yes, everything's hot for a Canadian.
0: <laughs> but this
1: is yes, that's why it's nice to be in the shade, but I'm definitely enjoying it. I mean the place where I grew up in northern Alberta had snow yesterday. So
0: Snow yesterday? Four inches. Oh my gosh. Yeah, and
1: they just had an absolutely brutal winter last year, so I don't imagine anybody's pleased at all to see the snow come so early. It'll it'll melt, but no, I'm pretty happy to see the beach here and and to enjoy the enjoy the sun.
0: Okay, well, I'm going to let you go. I um, I, hey, re- I appreciate it.
1: Hey, thanks a lot. It was really nice talking with you.
0: That was Jordan Peterson. He'll be at the Mahaffey Theater Saturday, September 15th. Thank you for joining us. And listen to Florida Matters on the radio, Tuesdays at 6.30 p.m., Sunday mornings at 7.30 on WUSF 89.7. Coming up Tuesday on Florida Matters, we've got a really special program about the anniversary of Hurricane Maria and the effects that had on Puerto Rico. I'm Robin Sussingham. Come back next week for another episode of Florida Matters More. If you like what you hear, leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe on iTunes, Google Play or Stitcher.